pay your attention, please. This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Dr. Doom wears fire to conceal his own backward form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. These children, they're not really bad, most of them. Just products of rotten neighborhoods and bad family situations. to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. Most of the time, anyway. But lately, I've been spending a shitload of time going through a bunch of six-issue mega-series dedicated to a single topic, or character, uh, idea, or theme, or, or, or just whatever it is that's going on. And so that's pretty much how I've been spending things for, I don't know, probably since the, probably since about the middle of uh, 2015, this is just what I've been up to. So as it goes for right now, today's, uh, today's comic is going to be all about Batgirl year one. That is the subject matter that I'm working my way through this week. And I guess the the sort of the germ of this idea, where it came from was this uh, Batman reading project that I embarked upon. Let me think. I guess about the time that... At the time that this episode comes out, I guess it was probably about a year and a half ago. Or a year ago, a year and a half ago, something like that. And... In the process of working my way through this reading project, it happens sometimes. I call it, I call it the fanboy muse. And sometimes the fanboy muse will take you in sort of unexpected directions, right? And sometimes you find things that you weren't necessarily looking for. And when I was going through this Batman comic book reading project, that's precisely what happened. I found something that a lot of you have probably known about for a really long time now. But I didn't know about myself because of the fact that, well, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put it out there and say that Batman fans can sometimes be kind of hard to deal with. In as much as 
it's not enough that they like Batman. They have to make fun of uh, Superman in the process. And that just, that just pisses me off. I mean, how insecure are you in your fandom that you can't enjoy or not enjoy a comic book character without, re- without reference to some other comic book character? I mean, you know, Spider-Man fans, it's enough for most of them that they like Spider-Man. They don't have to shit on Iron Man in order to like Spider-Man. But somehow, Batman fans, the only way they can be Batman fans is by being critical of Superman. I mean, it's just, it's weird to me. And it always has been. And this is a tendency that a lot of Batman fans all seem to have. And honestly, damned if I even know what... I guess, like, what the cause of it is. Because... I'm just just to look at it. I mean, look, the Batman fan base is the most predisposed to fanaticism that I've ever seen. When I think of fanboy in the vocabulary of an insult, I think of modern Batman fans. Batman fans of all variations can be about as bad as one another, but to be fair, I think that really it's the Chris Nolan fans who are the most consistently fucking insane. I'm not trying to offend anybody whenever I say that, but that's that's really just the way that I feel about it. And so, as it goes for the comic book this week, when I was when I was going through my Batman reading project, basically what I was doing was trying to proceed on the basis of Batman is a cool character. And you know what? His fans, maybe they are just total assholes. But that shouldn't affect the way that I, the way that I view the character. And like in a perfect world, I'd be able to like Batman and not think about what a bunch of dickheads a lot of his fans are, right? So that's sort of the, the attitude that I went into this reading project with. And as I say, I found something that I wasn't, specifically looking for, but which nevertheless fascinates me. My Batman fandom goes back a pretty long way when you come right down to it. I I would say that really what started my Batman fandom was the 1989 Batman film, the first Tim Burton Batman film. And that was, I maintain that is a great introduction to the character. But then on top of all of that, what happened was I was exposed to the Adam West TV show and then shortly after that, I, uh, my mom, for, as a, a birthday present, she gave me The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, which is not to be confused with Batman, hyphen space, The Greatest Stories Ever Told. No, this is The Greatest Batman Stories Ever Told, and I think it came out in like 1988 or 89, something like that. And it basically was intended to be a celebration of Batman's 50-year history. The shtick was it would take, uh, it would take you re- literally from the beginning... Uh, starting from Batman's earliest Golden Age adventures and then go right on through up to what was then the present day and basically cut through the glorious ice cream of Batman's publishing history, right? And so you get a little bit of Golden Age, you get a little bit of in-between, you get a little bit of Silver Age, you get a little bit of Bronze Age, you get a little bit of Late uh, Bronze Age, and it was shortly after that that the volume actually cut off. And so... There's really not a whole lot of room for 
Batgirl and and all of that stuff, especially since I hadn't really gotten to the Bat the Batgirl episodes of the uh, William Dozier Batman TV show just yet. So I did have a little bit of an awareness of Batgirl. And not just that there was such a character, but I'd rented this um, months, I think several months before the uh, Tim Burton movie even came out, I'd rented this collection of, I believe it was Filmation cartoons from the 1960s. The Adventures of Batman with Robin Boy Wonder. Batman and Robin, dynamic duo against crime and corruption, whose real identity is millionaire philanthropist Bruce Wayne and his young ward Dick Grayson are known only to Alfred the Faithful Butler. Ever alert, they respond swiftly to a signal from the police, and moments later, from the secret Batcave deep beneath Wayne Manor, they roar out to protect life, limb, and property as Batman and Robin, cape crime fighters. Batman and Robin, scourge of Gotham City's kooky criminals. The Joker, clown prince of crime. The Penguin, pudgy purveyor of perfidy. And the cool, cruel Mr. Freeze. Watch out, villains. Here come Batman and Robin. And it was basically part of that Superpowers video cassette home video release that... Uh, somebody embarked upon in the 1980s because uh, you had let me think you had superman superboy aquaman and maybe a couple of others but what really stands out is um is, is batman among other things i only saw it that a collection of cartoons just the one time but i do remember seeing that collection of cartoons and i also remember being really very intrigued by it in as much as you know batman was just so different from what I was used to being a Superman kid. Batman was, even that Filmation cartoon series was just so different from uh, from uh, Superman. And I don't really consider those Filmation cartoons to be an introduction to Batman because I got it more out of idle curiosity. You know, I wasn't, there really was nothing else on the, uh, on the shelf that I wanted to rent, so I just rented those Batman cartoons. And... I still regard the 1989 Tim Burton movie as being my real introduction to Batman, but my point in saying all this, though, is that Batgirl did pop up in one of those episodes of the Filmation cartoons. And I found that character very fascinating in that she's loosely an ally of Batman, but they're not exactly partners with one another. They don't as I recall, they did not know each other's secret identities in the Filmation cartoons, just like they didn't know each other's secret identities in uh, the Adam West TV show, although that would come later. One of the things that has always interested me about Batgirl, and I mean specifically Babs as Batgirl, is I guess her agenda for doing what she does. Because in the 60s, it's been a long time since I've read the million-dollar debut of Batgirl, or whatever that story is called, the one from the 60s. But over time, what... I, I guess my perception was that Babs became Batgirl because she's a little bit of a thrill-seeker. She's a little bit of a, of, a, of a daredevil. You know, she wants to do the right thing. I mean, her motives are pure. 
but she wants to do this without necessarily going to all of the the diligence and training and discipline that Batman put himself through. She wants to basically shortcut all of that because as much as anything, she's sort of out for a good time, you know, which is to say she's basically out for the thrill of the chase. And I've always thought that was an extremely interesting way to to do any kind of superhero, especially Batgirl, though, over and against how seriously Batman takes his mission, right? And so I don't know if that's a completely accurate characterization, I guess, of Babs, but nevertheless, that was the one that I had for a lot of years. And that lasted until I read, to kind of tie it all back into today's subject matter, that lasted until I read Batgirl Year One. And honestly, that's probably about as good a segue into uh, the summary of the first issue as anything that I can come up with. So, writer is Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon. Penciler is Marcus Martin. Inker is Alvaro Lopez. Letterer is Willie Schubert. Schubert, I don't really know how to pronounce that. Colorist is Javier Rodriguez. Editors are Matt Idelson. And then in the collected edition, which is what I have, Anton Kawasaki. So... Part 1, entitled Masquerade. The story opens in media res, which is to say in the middle of the action, with Barbara Gordon dressed as Batgirl facing down the villain Killer Moth at a costume ball. Through narration, Barbara relates the Greek myth of the prophet, uh, of the prophet Cassandra, who wore a mask to hide her shame from those who ridiculed and ignored her prophecies, even after they came true. The story then flashes back to days earlier, at the home she shares with her father, Gotham City Police Captain James Gordon. Barbara asks for permission to join the GCPD as a detective, but Gordon adamantly uh, forbids it, saying that one cop in the family is quite enough. Frustrated, Barbara applies for a job as an FBI field agent, but is similarly dismissed for her youth and her stature. Seeing the traditional avenues of crime fighting close to her, Barbara finds inspiration in the exploits of costumed vigilantes, specifically the superheroine Black Canary, who's a member of the Justice League of America. Using information gleaned from her dad's office and the assistance of computer hacking friends, Barbara breaks into the headquarters of the Justice League's sister organization, the Justice Society of America, and leaves a note asking to meet with Black Canary so that she can become her apprentice. To be continued... This issue was really the first the first time I'd had occasion to I guess reevaluate Barbara Gordon as a character, right? And as I say in the summary, I mean this story opens up pretty much in the middle of the action with Killer Moth crashing this this costume party that Barbara's attending, not even as Batgirl. She's just showing up as a female Batman, right? She's basically wearing what she thinks a Batman costume looks like. And her inner monologue talks about the Oracle Cassandra, who wore a mask to hide her shame. She knew what the future held, and nobody believed her. They all thought that she was a joke. And that pretty much is a good entree into Barbara Gordon as a character, as we flash back to a couple of days earlier, where she suggests to Jim Gordon that she becomes a cop. And here's the thing. Gordon laughs at her. He laughs at her. And he kind of has this 
very smirky, very smarmy, very just fucking patronizing uh, grin on his face. And uh, he says, oh, a, a detective, huh? You don't even meet the minimum height requirements. <laughs> and Barbara kind of loses her shit over that. And so we cut back to, as we go through the issue, we cut through, or rather we cut back to, a, uh, to the party with, to, uh, basically it's Barbara. I can't even really call her Batgirl here. And she's beating the shit out of uh, Killer Moth's uh, thugs, right? And so, anyway, another flash, uh, flashback, and you, what we have here is Barbara, she's working at the library, and she's basically plotting, she's planning, she's scheming, she's scamming. She's trying to find some other way of getting out of basically this dead-end library job where she doesn't want to be into doing something that she is more interested in. And here's the thing. Barbara's extremely interested in criminology, right? I don't know as I'd go so far as to say crime fighting, because I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to put it, but she is interested in law enforcement of some kind. And so she's singularly devoted to that in a weird kind of way, almost as much as Batman is devoted to his to his crusade, but it's just it's just different. Barbara's motivations and her philosophies and her values are just different from what drives Batman. Babs is not Batman and drag. She is her own unique character. And the first several issues of this miniseries, in a very fluid and organic way, show us that she's not just a Batman copycat. She is her own person. And she's going to make a very similar choice as Bruce Wayne does, but not for the same reasons. She's not driven by the same things. But she gets interrupted in all of this by her co-worker Donald, who keeps finding excuses to talk to her because he's interested in her. Babs sees right through that and says, Dude, if you want to ask me out, ask me out. But you don't need to come in here inventing excuses to talk to me. So, embarrassed, he wanders out of the room. And this is one of those things that, very honestly, it, could, it really could have been the moment in this story when the reader sort of turns on Babs because... You can do this to somebody, or rather, you can write this and you could write this scene in such a way that Babs is kind of an obnoxious bitch for treating Donald like this, but she's not. She basically just breaks down the facts. Dude, you like me. I know you like me. You know you like me. So let's stop fucking around here. If this is what you want, ask. She's trying to push him to be direct. She's not being dismissive of him. And I don't know. It's just. I like this. This is one of those... I, I feel like this is a scene in the hands of a lesser writer. It really could have gone overboard with that whole girl power bullshit. But instead, it's just Barbara being direct in a way that Donald just isn't really ready to be direct. Speaking of being direct. From there, we cut to uh, Barbara in the middle of... It looks like this is like some kind of Taekwondo practice or uh, maybe it's Judo. I'm not really sure what exactly this is. But basically, Barbara's sparring with her sensei and basically what he does is he mocks and ridicules her he says show me you belong in this class because i don't think you can cut it what was that did you say you're weak did you say you're small barbara answers that she's scared so master douchebag says i knew it c class 
You have to want it really bad. Babsy here just showed us that she doesn't want it bad, and Babs chooses that moment to go into action. She, Now that he, he's turned his back on her, she swings into action and uh, basically pins him to the mat. This, this, to me, was the moment that Babs as a character made sense to me. In fact, I'm fucking. I'm just going to read her narration because this is this is really just too perfect. Dad thinks I'm too short. My sensei thinks I'm too girly. But just like the principles of jujitsu, I use their expectations against them. That'll be their weakness, not mine. Let them all underestimate me. And here's the thing. Babs is willing to use those tactics in order to win. But she is sick to fuck of being babied. She's, being, she's sick of being underestimated. She's sick of being treated like a fucking child. Her dad talks down to her. Her sensei talks down to her. And in this very next scene, the FBI director talks down to her too. Basically, he makes the same, uh, the same joke that Jim Gordon does. You don't even meet our minimum height requirements. Everybody at every step of the way is underestimating Babs. And then from there, we cut back. This is now page 12. We cut back to the costume party where Babs is wrecking shop on Killer Moth's uh, henchmen with a much clearer idea of who Babs is and what she's up to here. The simple fact of the matter is you now realize that Babs is doing this because she's got no other outlet. Bruce Wayne became Batman, I don't think for altruistic purposes. He became Batman because he personally needs to exercise control. There's a sense in which Batman, as a, as a construct of Bruce Wayne's imagination, really is a little, bit of, a little bit totalitarian. I don't think that's an unreasonable interpretation of Batman by any stretch. That is not Babs's reason for becoming Batgirl. She's forbidden from becoming a cop. She's not allowed to become an FBI agent. And so she knows that she wants to arrest perps, but she has no legitimate outlet for doing so. She wants to do this, but nobody wants to let her. She's sick and fucking tired of being treated like a child but that's all anybody sees when they look at her. They don't see a, a bright, capable young woman. They simply see a little girl. And she's at a point in her psychological development now where she's willing to use that against other people. And I think that's an incredibly fucking insightful way to write Batgirl. Because I'll be honest with you guys, for a lot of years there, until I read this miniseries, I just didn't really get Batgirl. And even, even when I did... You know, that whole idea of her being sort of an adrenaline junkie with a heart of gold. I just didn't find that to be a very satisfactory portrayal of, uh, of Babs. And it's one of those reasons why I kind of liked Oracle more than I liked Babs' Batgirl. And I'll come back to Oracle probably at some point, but I'm not trying to say that, you know, Babs' Batgirl is, uh, is automatically better than Babs' Oracle. 
I'm just saying that I was very dismissive of, uh, of Babs as Batgirl when, honestly, I shouldn't have been. And this miniseries, especially just... I mean, guys, we're only up to page 12 here, but already I've got a much keener appreciation of who Barbara Gordon is and what she wants than I ever did before. And I just... that. I was not, like I say, I was not expecting to find this, but now that I have it, I'll probably never see her any other way than the girl who has, a, not in a negative way, you understand, but she's got a little bit of a chip on her shoulder. She's got something to prove. That plays for me. So anyway, she's swinging around the party. and In a weird kind of way, you can see the smile on her face. She's having the time of her life doing this. Uh, this is a bigger thrill than she'd ever thought that she was ever going to have in life. And she's, in a weird kind of way, enjoying herself. Now, this again is a moment to set Barbara Gordon apart from Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson. Bruce, I don't think he necessarily gets any kind of joy or personal, uh, personal fulfillment or maybe personal happiness out of doing what he does, out of being Batman. I don't think that's the right way of looking at it. Dick, I think, views this as just another challenge in life to be overcome. Barbara, to kind of tie it back to the thrill-seeker thing that I was talking about earlier, she is enjoying herself here. But here's the thing. It's not because she's a thrill-seeker. It's not because she's an adrenaline junkie, as I originally thought. What she's enjoying is knowing that she was right. She, she deserves a place on the battlefield, so to speak, right? Jim Gordon was wrong from whenever he forbade her to have uh, uh, to become a cop. The FBI uh, recruiting officer was wrong whenever he made fun of her. She was right. Now, that's not to say that she handles this situation exactly perfectly, because believe me, she doesn't. But she was on the right she was on the right track. Her, her methods and her, I don't know, I guess her execution of all of this may be flawed. But she's still, she's still on the right track here, and that's, that's what I'm saying. So anyway, fla uh, flashing away from the party again, we get to this moment where Babs realized that she needs a mentor, right? And... What she realizes is Batman is not the only game in town. There are other people who do the things that Batman does. And Barbara Gordon wants to be instructed and taught by somebody that she can respect. On that basis, the only logical answer is the Black Canary. And so she embarks on this quest to get the Black Canary's attention. She goes through these just incredible lengths to leave a, a message for the Black Canary. And it doesn't, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of it here, but she basically goes far out of her way to, uh, going so far as to break into head, uh, the Justice Society headquarters to leave a message for her. And that just works so friggin' well for me. I just, I buy this, you know, I buy that she would do this. And you know what? Here's the other thing. I buy that she's capable of doing this. She's got the brains. She's got the computer knowledge. She's, um, she's obviously sneaky enough that she can prowl around 
a, a secured headquarters like this without setting off all of those different alarms and everything. I completely buy that, ba that Babs is capable of doing this in the context of this story. So that, my friends, is good writing. And so her effort pays off. She's successful in leaving her message there. So that basically leads us into part two, title of which is Future Tense. Barbara arrives at the meeting point the next night, only to be confronted by the JSA member Wildcat rather than Black Canary. He tells her that he didn't forward Barbara's letter to Black Canary, but knows she wouldn't be interested, and then advises Barbara to give up her aspirations. After Babs leaves, Wildcat talks to Dr. Fate, who predicts triumph and tragedy in, in Babs's future. Disheartened, Barbara falls into a slump for several days. Her father attempts to console her by inviting her to a masquerade ball for police officers as well as Gotham's elite. Barbara decides to use the opportunity to get back at her dad and shows up dressed up in a, in a modified Batman costume, poking fun at her dad's controversial dealing with the vigilante. But before she can make her presence known as Barbara, the ball's interrupted by Killer Moth who wants to kidnap Bruce Wayne. Captain Gordon intervenes but is knocked unconscious. Barbara, in full Batgirl costume, engages Killer Moth and lets Bruce Wayne escape, bringing the story to the point where it originally began back in issue number one. Wayne makes it to his car where he prepares to don the attire of his alter ego, which is to say Batman, and calls his sidekick Dick Grayson, also known as Robin, for assistance. Barbara chases Killer Moth into a nearby forest, but he escapes via helicopter, leaving her to be confronted by Batman and Robin. So, here we're basically picking up where we left off in the last issue, where, in a not-patronizing-at-all type of way, Wildcat basically tries to talk Babs out of going into this, going into this superhero life. He's not, he's not being patronizing about it. He simply says, this life ain't for you, Green Eyes. Everybody hates you. You got no life of your own, and you could end up arthritic or crippled. Which is kind of ironic, considering what's in Babs's future. But he's not being dismissive of her. He simply doesn't want the life that he's lived for her, even though she's a complete stranger. And this, I think, is the first reasonable resistance that Barbara's gotten to going into this type of life. Yes, she's being shut out of the superhero community too, so let's tally up. She's been turned away from Gotham City Police, she's been turned away by the FBI, and she's been turned away by the superhero community. Difference is, though, in this case, is that Wildcat's actually giving her very logical, very lucid arguments for not doing this. He's not being dismissive of her because of her, uh, because of her sex, or for that matter, because of her physical size. He's simply saying, no one should have to live this way. Not me, certainly not you. And in a weird kind of way, that's the first validation that Barbara's had in this whole mess. And from there, we flash back to the costume party where Batgirl's kicking ass on, on Killer Moth. And again, we get some more, this is just amazing inner monologue here. They treat me like I'm a stupid girl. Some delusional little girl. And I, and I believe it, too. I see what they see as providence. 
for a while. It sticks. There's a point where Barbara goes through a serious funk in, in this story, or rather in this issue, right? Yes, she's sick and tired of being talked down to. She's sick and tired of being underestimated. And so her method of dealing with this, of getting back at her father, is basically to show up at the costume party dressed like Batman. This is a sort of makeshift Batman costume that she's wearing. It's basically, She's never gotten a, a really good look at Batman, so really this is her best approximation of what his outfit probably looks like. And who's to say how the night might have turned out, except for the fact that Killer Moth and uh, his henchmen invade the party and try kidnapping Bruce Wayne. From there, you know, Dick Grayson sees what's happening on TV, swoops into action, but at least in the moment, this is Batgirl's fight. She's pretty much in this thing all by herself. And the hell of it is, like I say, she hasn't had the same degree of training and, and discipline that Bruce has. She doesn't have Dick Grayson's natural aptitude and uh, his, his background as an acrobat. But what she does have is drive. She's got her personal creativity. In the moment, she's questioning her ability to actually do this. But the thing is, she's doing great. And she, it, maybe it's just a mark of how much she's been somewhat beaten down lately. That her, that her sense of self-confidence just isn't what it ought to be. But at least in the moment, she doesn't realize... She's doing what she needs to do. I mean, when you when, when you really think about it, all she has to do is either win or else or else keep Killer Moth there long enough for armed policemen to show up on the scene and arrest him. Really, she just needs to do one of those two things. And there comes a point when she realizes it. She understands that she is capable of doing this. She swoops into action, slides on the floor, kicks Killer Moth in the ankle, probably breaks it, and then from there, the chase is on. He makes his escape and ends up, of all things, boarding a helicopter before Batgirl ends up getting intercepted by Batman and Robin. And it takes her a minute to realize it. In fact, I don't even think she does realize it in this issue. But she did what she needed to do. Killer Moth showed, showed up with the... It was, his agenda was to kidnap Bruce Wayne. He left empty-handed. So Barbara kind of won this thing just by showing up. You know, just by sending him home without his prize, Barbara won. And that's an important thing to remember as we get into... Issue number three, entitled Afterglow. Batman de demands to know who she, which me meaning Babs, who she is and tells her that she's got no right to wear his symbol. Defiant, Barbara point points out that nobody gave him the right to do what he does either. Their standoff ends up getting cut short as Killer Moth returns in his helicopter and opens fire with a machine gun, loudly taunting Batman, Robin, and Batgirl. 
The three scatter, and Killer Moth is chased away by police helicopters. Barbara makes it home before her father does, and a young officer named Jason Bard swings by to check on her. She pretends to be sick and explains that she, doesn't, that she didn't actually end up uh, making it to the masquerade ball. The next morning, her father asks about last night, but she repeats the same lie. Captain Gordon appears to accept it, but leaves behind a newspaper featuring an, obs- uh, an obscured photograph of Batgirl and a scrap of her cape that was left at the scene, leaving her to wonder if, if he actually suspects more. Nonetheless, she builds on her Batgirl identity and begins to foil crimes around Gotham City. After inv- uh, investing in new equipment, Barbara decides to test her repelling rope by swinging off of a skyscraper, unaware that Batman and Robin are watching her scale the building. Meanwhile, a disgraced killer moth tries to convince a gangster named Tony Bressy to hire him for protection, but Bressy dismisses him for getting publicly beaten by a girl. Later, it's revealed that killer moth's true identity is that of bankrupt ex-millionaire Cameron Von Clear, who actually owes money to Bressy. To be continued. This issue, it's kind of funny that in a weird kind of way, Batman tells uh, Babs the same sort of stuff that everyone else has told her, but yet again, from a different point of view. But I'll come back to that in a moment. Right now, what we have is a scene where Robin tries to take Batgirl down, and she ends up holding her own against him. I mean, it's it's kind of a brief little tussle, but more than moment... Uh, or rather, more than anything, what she, what, what she, dis, what the, what the reader realizes is that, you know, Dick Grayson is no slouch, but Batgirl can hang, hang with him, and in fact, her inner monologue again is, it's just very telling. She says, "Little twerp in short pants thinks I'm a walkover. He's got a lot to learn. Despite my best predictions, I didn't mean for tonight to turn out like it did." But I'm not going to let these two push me around. All I wanted was to give Daddy a few bad moments. To prove my value. My potential. Now I'm walking on somebody's cape. Once again. Batman is telling Barbara that she has no right to wear this symbol. Once again, Batman's telling Barbara that she shouldn't be doing this. But for the first time... Barbara actually now has evidence to the contrary. She earned her victory tonight. And make no mistake about it, the victory against Killer Moth tonight, that's her victory. So, all of this, of course, ends up getting interrupted by Killer Moth, and then Batgirl makes her escape. She hauls balls back to her place and uh, barely manages to answer the door without raising suspicion and basically tells the... uh, the police officer, nope, everything's fine, I just felt sick, didn't make it to the party, etc., etc. Next morning, though, Gordon finds a, a newspaper, and leaves it on uh, Barbara's bed, and then fishes a piece of uh, Barbara's torn-up cape from the rose bush outside her window, leaves both of them sitting on Barbara's bed, and you kind of have to wonder what if anything, does he suspect? And it's it's just, it's a powerful moment. So it, it, it definitely kind of heightens the paranoia of it all. I'll say that. From there, we get a scene where 
Batman and Robin meet with, uh, I guess I have to say, Captain Gordon on the roof of police headquarters, specifically to talk about Batgirl. Batman has to make a special point of saying that whatever, whoever this person is, she's unlicensed. She's not working under Batman's auspices. And from there, we cut to a scene of Batgirl. She's foiling a uh, robbery of a convenience store. She's got one dude in a headlock while she ninja kicks another guy in the face. And again, Batgirl is good at what she does, you know? And this is another reminder to her and to the and really to the reader that she's not a slouch you know she's she is creative she is talented she is capable of doing this so it's uh, just a neat little moment I, and honestly i could have used a few more moments like this all throughout you know this whole mini series but whatever take what you can get i suppose from there barbara decides to uh, i guess test her new equipment uh, she wants to swing around off a building the way Batman does. And from there, the, actually, the this is actually sort of weird in that the issue just kind of ends, you know? So it's a little bit of a cliffhanger in that we find out that Batman and Robin have been spying on Batgirl, but the, the issue just sort of ends. So <sighs> interesting way to end a story, I'll say that. So from there, we get into... This is Batgirl, year one, number four. Story, uh, the story is titled Cave Dwellers. Barbara leaps off the skyscraper and all goes well until her rope snags in the middle of her descent. Actually, it snaps. Sorry. It snaps in the middle of her descent. Robin swoops in to catch her, admitting that Batman cut a rope with a battering since the rope that she was using would have either sliced her hands off or dislocated her arms once it tightened up. Still pissed off about the whole thing, Barbara tries to attack him, but he knocks her out with a sleeping gas. Barbara wakes up in the Batcave and is left with Robin, who gives her a, a tour of the place. He takes her to a soundstage where she successfully runs through an elaborate combat simulation, complete with live gunfire. Babs cites this as proof that she's capable of, of joining the team, but when Batman asks her why she wants to do this, she's unable to give him a clear answer, except that she simply can and she believes Gotham needs all the help it can get. Still unimpressed, Batman and Robin knock her out once more with sleeping gas. Barbara wakes up in front of, or rather, wakes up inside of her house. No, actually, I'm looking at the art. No, she's actually in front of her house without her cowl on. She realizes this means that they know who she is, and she worries that they might talk to her father about it. But later in the day, Barbara receives a package from Robin containing spare crime-fighting gear, including the correct rope for swinging off of buildings, as well as a note assuring her that Batman's going to come around on this. To be continued. So, this issue, which is to say number four, this issue is the moment where it kind of, things, things start to turn. Before we get into that, though, Babs is inner monologue at the beginning of the issue is it's it's more gold she's uh she's thinking to herself this may be the dumbest thing i've ever done grand avenue rushes up to meet me i'm breathless i'm terrified i'm happier than i've ever been for a few seconds and then her line gets cut now she's just in total free fall so 
Um, this issue, though, is the moment where, yes, once again, Babs, people are trying to talk her out of doing this. But for the first time, she's making actual progress. She's making headway. She convinces somebody, which is to say Robin, that she is capable. She can do this. She's not a helpless little girl. She can She can be a superhero. And anyway, it's it's a blink and you miss it, but this is a this is a major turning point in in a uh, Batgirl's, I guess, development, right? And yes, there is the fact that she does great in that uh, combat simulation, you know, with live gunfire, live explosions, and all that stuff. But this did not fall on deaf ears. Robin gets it. Maybe for the wrong reasons, but Robin gets it. And Robin knows Batman well enough to say that he's going to change his mind on this soon enough. And speaking of what I found earlier as I was going through this Batman reading project, you've got Robin and Alfred in this uh, van. They've just dropped uh, Barbara off in front of her house. And you've got Robin saying, world's greatest detective. (laughs) From there, Alfred answers... The obvious sometimes eludes even him, lad. And you say you knew it from the start? And Dick replies, Yeah, the red hair, that cute little burst of freckles across the bridge of her nose. Cowl or no cowl, I'd recognize Captain Gordon's daughter anywhere. And I just thought that was an incredibly insightful moment. And trust me, we're going to be talking a lot more about that in... in, not very long, actually, but for right now, Barbara gets her package, and it's full of, it looks like smoke bombs, a swing line, and batarangs, and I don't know if Barbara even completely understands the significance of this moment. She changed Robin's mind, and Robin knows Batman well enough to know that he's going to change his mind before too long, too, and so this is a very... This is a crucial victory. This is a much-needed victory for Babs. And it's it's just... This is the moment, arguably, where Batgirl isn't just a figment of Babs' imagination anymore. She's a real thing. Speaking of which, that brings us to Part 5, Moth to a Flame. Rejected by Gotham's underworld and his own henchmen... Killer Moth finds an opportunity to salvage his reputation when he's approached by a pyromaniac named Garfield Lenz. Looking for an outlet for his sadistic tendencies, Lenz offers to help Killer Moth exact revenge on Batgirl and form a criminal partnership. Lenz adopts the costumed persona of Firefly, complete with a devastating flamethrower. The the duo's first criminal act is intimidating Tony Bressy into hiring them. So, from there, the story kicks off with, again, and media res, with 
Barbara basically in the middle of a fight getting choked to death by Killer Moth. And from there, this is actually, the first couple of pages are really all about Killer Moth and Firefly. And I guess character moments and issues and whatnot related to them. But I guess as far as character issues are concerned, I mean, Firefly is one sick son of a bitch. He gets his jollies out of, in this case, uh, blowing up a movie star. You know, I mean, this—I mean, this chick has got to be covered with third-degree burns all over her body, and Firefly looks like he's kind of happy about that. He enjoys it. So, um, anyway, from there, again, it's just—it's really more character stuff related to uh, related to a Firefly and uh, and the Killer Moth, and at this point, really, no one takes them seriously. They create a, a a partnership with each other, and they basically go out looking for trouble. They blow up a bar, burn it to the ground. This is Tony Bressy's bar, and it's only really when you get to the end of the story that you realize, except for the first page, which is obviously going to take place in the future, Babs really isn't in this story pretty much at all. So, kind of interesting. Anyway... Getting into uh, issue number seven, though. Actually, I'm sorry, issue number six. I lost count here for a minute. This is uh, part six, Bird of Prey. Tony Bressy tries to get rid of Firefly and Killer Moth by staging an elaborate frame-up. He orders two of his henchmen to kidnap Captain Gordon while wearing a costume similar to Killer Moth and Firefly. Kill him in a secluded area call the real Killer Moth and Firefly, uh, Firefly to the location, while simultaneously informing the police to their whereabouts and thereby framing them for Gordon's murder. The doppelgangers succeed in abducting Gordon while killing one of his friends, wounding Officer Bard, and setting fire to an office building in the process. Barbara finds out about her, uh, about her father's abduction and arrives at the scene as Batgirl where Jason tells her that he heard the henchman mention Bressy's greenhouse outside of Gotham. Barbara prepares to head there, but bumps into Black Canary, who's also investigating the crime. Canary, believing Batgirl to be an official associate of Batman, offers to tag along. The pair arrive at the greenhouse, and Bressy's henchman, still in costume, take Gordon and flee. On the way to the greenhouse, the real Killer Moth and Fi Firefly spot Black Canary and Batgirl, chasing their doppelgangers. Bressy's henchmen end up leading all four pursuers to Tony Bressy's home, where the real Killer Moth and Firefly ambush everybody. To be continued. So, as to the issue at hand, this kind of continues the theme of Barbara being enfranchised in, the, in I guess, the, the world of superheroes, vigilantes, and all that sort of fun stuff. And... This is, again, a major, this is a major victory for her. The, uh, the story starts off with Black Canary and Batgirl fighting somebody in the greenhouse. And as with so much of this in media res stuff, you don't exactly know what the uh, context of all this is until later on in the story. And to kind of flash backwards... <laughs> You've got Batgirl. She gets a motorcycle uh, from Robin, and 
she questions whether or not Batman knows that she's got this motorcycle. And Robin doesn't even really answer her question. He just says, you're kidding, right? Anyway, I find that kind of interesting myself. Now, uh, he explains, you know, what the motorcycle is, how it works. This isn't just a motorcycle. You turn on the key and then you drive off. This has got a little bit more to it than that. You know, the toys, the gadgets and everything that, that go with the uh, that go with the motorcycle, and obviously a bat, a, a sort of bat cowl-shaped helmet that, uh, that Barbara's supposed to wear. There's a moment at the bottom of page six where Robin and Batgirl are practically nose-to-nose with, nose nose with each other. And Barbara's inner monologue says, he, meaning Robin, he doesn't say anything for the longest time. But then he tells me that he's just doing his part for the good of Gotham. His voice cracks just a little, though. From there, Batgirl zips off on on her on her motorcycle and we see that Batman has been spying on all of uh, on all of this from the get-go he gets joined by Robin and it's clear that yes this motorcycle did in fact come from Batman and this is a kind of interesting character moment for Batman in as much as he tried to talk Barbara out of doing this just a couple of issues ago and now here he is not openly sanctioning what she's doing, but nevertheless tacitly permitting it. And you get the idea that, I don't know, I mean, obviously Batman's got involvement with this. He knows exactly what's going on. Robin didn't give, uh, Robin didn't give Batgirl a motorcycle just because he felt like doing it. He, Batman truly was behind all of that. And I don't know why, but I can't help thinking that Batman views Batgirl in, on just fundamentally different terms than he does Robin. He views Robin as a partner. And in a strange kind of way, as a brother. He views Batgirl as an ally and... I don't mean this in like a negative sense, but also as a tool. She can be directed. She can be pointed. There are things that she can do. And the fact is, she's going to do this no matter what. So if she's going to do it, it makes sense that Batman's somewhat director in terms of what she does. And I think that's an incredibly insightful way for Batman to handle the situation. And so that's the way I choose to interpret it. So, anyway, cut back to the action. Batgirl and Black Canary are in the middle of a car chase, trying to catch up with uh, her father and the fake Killer Moth and, fi <clears throat> and uh, Firefly. So, needless to say, all kinds of insanity is, uh, is uh, uh, ensuing here. And I guess now is probably about as good a time as any to talk about just I guess I, I think a lot of writers will write a story in a sort of non-linear uh, linear way, and they sort of use that as a crutch. But that is not a crutch here. This story is not told, obviously it's not told, linearly. And I think it's the better for it. 
Jeff Johns has a funny way sometimes of not telling stories in a linear fashion, but there's no real payoff for it. Anyway, I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. So, uh, get back into it though. On page 15, you've got uh, Barbara zooming around on the Bat Cycle, and her inner monologue. Again, this is just, this is just gold. She says. Pixie Boots must wear thermal underwear when he's riding one of these, meaning one of these motorcycles. Windchill's got to be murder with those shorty pants he wears. Cute legs, though. What I still can't figure out is why he's going to so much trouble to help me. If Papa Bat ever found out, there'd be hell to pay in that high-tech belfry they skulk around. And then from there, Barbara overhears a call on the police scanner saying that uh, the, that uh, Captain Gordon's been kidnapped, and then... Obviously, this story is now officially in full swing. Elsewhere, on the Justice League satellite, Black Canary gets uh, zipped down as part of this. Basically, she's tied in with this story as much as anything else. And so she's got uh, a purpose in being here. And so she offers to team up with uh, Batgirl on all this. And it's interesting that I, or maybe ironic, I, appropriate, fitting, something, that it's Batgirl and Black Canary teaming up, considering, obviously, that in a couple of issues in the past, Babs tried like crazy to get Black Canary's attention, and it just didn't work. And here, what we see is that, in a weird kind of way, that's actually sort of come to fulfillment. So, I don't know. That just, I liked that. That worked for me. So, from there... Uh, Batgirl and Black Canary are, uh, you know, the chase is on. And they end up getting ambushed by the real Killer Moth and Firefly over and against the fake Killer Moth and the fake uh, Firefly. And, again, I can't, as I read, as I read Babs's inner monologues through all of this, I just can't shake the feeling that, yeah, her father's been kidnapped. She just got uh, ambushed herself. And at least for the moment, she and Black Canary are on the ropes. She's still having the time of her life with all of this. So, anyway. Get back in, uh, get back into uh, the story summaries, though. That leads us into part seven. And this is... I want to make sure that I'm actually reading part seven this time. Yes, this truly is part seven. Hearts of Fire. Firefly deduces Bressy's plans and brutally incinerates the, the doppelgangers, but also ignites a fuel tank which causes an explosion in the mansion. In the confusion, Barbara evacuates her father and, and the costumed villains escape the premises. Batgirl leaves Black Canary to watch over Gordon, Bressy, and then deal with the cops, but, ha but she has to return home on foot as her bat cycle has been destroyed. Gordon returns to police headquarters the same night and calls for a meeting with Batman, only to be met by Robin. Gordon asks if Batman is expanding the franchise, so to speak, but Robin assures him that Batgirl has nothing to do with them. Exasperated, Gordon leaves, telling Robin that Batman needs to put a stop to Batgirl, or he's going to have to do it himself. The next evening, Barbara visits Officer Bard in the hospital. Barbara thanks Jason for trying to save her dad, but he feels that he failed nevertheless and acknowledges that his injury means he's going to have to leave the force. 
Barbara reassures him that he'll be able to find work in other fields. Before the two can bond any longer, they're interrupted by her father, who also came to, uh, who also came to visit. Embarrassed, Barbara leaves and goes on patrol as Batgirl to clear her head. While dispatching a mugger, Barbara meets Robin, who presents her with a new bat cycle, and invites her to join him on an emergency call. The pair ride their bikes into Gotham's uh, subway, where the emergency is taking place. To be continued. Now, get into the story, uh, or rather the, uh, you know, the the issue proper. The thing about it, really, that that works for me is that once again. Gordon is showing opposition to somebody new joining Batman's team. But, again, as, as with, you know, the, the costume party, you can't help but wonder just how much Gordon knows in all this. And is he opposed to another possible minor joining up with Batman? Or is he opposed because he knows that it's Barbara under the mask? So, I don't know. <sighs> Either way, I really like Robin's Robin's dialogue on on uh, just throughout really this this entire scene. Robin, he he never really answers a question directly whenever somebody asks, and. I don't know. I, I can't even really put it into words. I mean, I don't want to go so far as to call, as to compare him to Spider-Man exactly, but he does have this sort of sarcastic way of dealing with, uh, of answering people's questions whenever he doesn't really want to give answers. I don't know. It's just there's an irreverence here. I'm it, I'm not doing a good job of exp, uh, of explaining it, but I just. I just enjoy it, so that's the point. So, anyway, the uh, as to the, the 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 remainder of the issue, it's pretty clear that Barbara's trying to avoid uh, her father. And honestly, I mean, she's got these sort of burn marks on her face in the shape of her Batgirl mask, so that makes a lot of sense. Towards the end of the issue, though, uh, what we see is you know Batgirl she takes down. A, a very simple street mugging, but she does it so fucking efficiently, and from there, she and she and uh, a Robin end up going on a sort of patrol together. Robin has a very stylized type of motorcycle. It's got his R on it. What's interesting is Batgirl's bat cycle. It's got a Batgirl-shaped symbol on it. This isn't just a leftover bat cycle. This, it truly does look like her, like her symbol. And for the first time, it's got to be acknowledged. Barbara's got to start realizing that this, this isn't being done behind Batman's back anymore. And I don't know. It's. And once again, this is her being further enfranchised into the superhero community, specifically the Batman and Robin team. And it, she's, and I guess what I'm saying is, she started off as Batgirl being very mixed up. She didn't have much of a plan. She didn't really know what she was doing. 
and that's changing here. And in a weird kind of way, Robin is sort of Barbara's entree into all of this. I mean, you could fairly well say that it's because of Dick that Babs is being given... I don't know, a greater role on the team, so to speak. She's getting some of the some of the vehicles. She's getting some of the toys, the batterings, the bat cycles, all that stuff. And she's she's no longer so much out to prove that she's not some helpless little girl. As much as anything, she's just trying not, at this point not to get herself killed. You know, she's proven that she can do this. She now has to learn how to do this better. And this is a very natural and very organic arc for her character to take throughout this whole series. And I mean, I'm really not trying to ramble here. I'm just saying that this, there's a fucking honesty to this. It, I don't know. It, it's just, it's very easy to believe in. So, uh, that is basically the end though of part seven and pretty much takes us into part eight. The title of which is seasoned crime fighter. Batgirl and Robin arrive at a subway platform where they arrest an aspiring uh, criminal named the Condiment King for harassing passers-by. Bemused and unimpressed, Barbara wonders how a harmless nuisance constitutes an emergency, but Robin tells her that he, he was just a detour. The real emergency is a hostage situation on one of the trains. As they talk... Robin shocks Bat, uh, Batgirl by planning a, a kiss on her. Without saying another word, the pair continues down the subway tunnels towards the runaway train. When they find the train, Robin informs Barbara that Blockbuster, a deformed behemoth of a man, is aboard, terrorizing the passengers. Inside, Barbara baits Blockbuster into fighting her, while Robin evacuates the passengers to another car. Batgirl's fight with Blockbuster leads her onto the roof of the train where Blockbuster attempts to crush her head, but she's spared when a slab of overhanging concrete knocks him out. Robin and Batgirl truss up Blockbuster and steer the train towards the next station where the police are waiting. Batgirl tries to kiss Barbara again, but she pushes him away. When the train pulls into the station, Captain Gordon finds Blockbuster, but not the young crime fighters. But he does find a lock of Barbara's red hair in Blockbuster's hands, which causes him to rush home. Barbara changes back to her civilian clothes and bids goodbye to Robin. When she makes it back home, she's confronted by her father, who's been searching her room. Before either of them can say anything, he receives an emergency call and rushes out of the house. Barbara follows him and finds that GCPD headquarters has been set ablaze by Firefly and Killer Moth. Barbara decides to suit up as Batgirl once again. To be concluded. So, what we have is uh, this story kicking off with Batgirl and Robin driving the, driving their cycle their motorcycles through this uh, train station, dodging commuters and passers-by and, and people like that. And like I say, there's this kind of interesting, kind of amusing scene, really, where they. Uh, pretty much have it out with this wannabe supervillain called the Condiment King. And I I don't know. this. I mean, you got to figure if Gotham City is, uh, if, if, if it's a place full of all of these costumed weirdos and this is all a bizarre form of performance art, 
then yeah, you're going to get weirdos like Condiment King who just want to join in the fun, but they don't really know how to save anybody and they don't really know how to commit crimes. They're just kind of there. And so anyway, Robin, Robin takes uh, the Condiment King out with one sidekick and then he and Batgirl... Well, on page seven, they just have... They just have this neat little kiss. And you get the idea that Robin, he's this impulsive sort of thrill seeker. He does what he wants to do at the time that he wants to do it. And let's not face it, he's a fucking teenager hanging around with his girl in tights. I mean, you know, yeah, he's going to be pitching a tent here at least a little bit. And so he plants one on her and then zooms off. And then from there, he and, he and Batgirl force their way onto the train and I don't know. I mean, again, Barbara has proven herself several times now, you know, and it's not, I mean, back in, back in issue number two, I might've been a, I might've found it just a little bit hard to believe that a Batgirl could, uh, I would I would have just found it hard to believe that Batgirl could take on somebody like Blockbuster, but here, you know, again, she doesn't take him she doesn't take him down using superior firepower or that she outfights him or something like that. She basically just uses her surroundings to her advantage. And anyway, it's just it's a very believable type of thing for me. So on page eighteen, you get the idea that I don't really as I as I'm looking at this art, I don't really interpret it so much as Robin's trying to go in for another kiss. Batgirl, it looks like she's maybe tempted to kiss him again, but then she just pushes him back. No, we're not going to do this. Not here, not now. She's not saying no ever. She's just saying not here, not now. And I don't know. It's I just, I find this all, this just seems so high school to me, you know? And it just, it just rings very true, I guess is what I'm saying here. And from there, Barbara makes it home. And this has got to be the scariest fucking thing she can possibly imagine in that Gordon may actually know now that she's Batgirl. So that's about as good an entry point into Batgirl Year One, number nine, as anything I can think of, title of which is Ashes and Blood. Killer Moth and Firefly survey their handiwork from the roof of the very building that they set alight and begin to make their escape via helicopter. Batgirl lassos a rope and tethers herself to the aircraft. Firefly sees her, but orders his pilot to take off anyway, and the helicopter flies through Gotham with Batgirl in tow. Batman and Robin arrive with their own aircraft, but concede they don't have a way to ground the villains without killing them or Batgirl, so they have to wait to see what she can do. While being dragged through the air, Barbara pulls off a risky maneuver which causes the helicopter to crash on a rooftop while she falls into a rooftop pool, narrowly avoiding death. An injured killer moth and firefly are apprehended by Batman and Robin, while Barbara watches them from a distance, chagrined that while she did all the work, 
they'll be getting all the glory. The story flashes forward a few days later. Barbara hasn't spoken to her dad, but feels that her Batgirl career is now over, no matter what. However, she's invited by Batman to the Batcave, where she runs through yet another obstacle course, but against simulations of his most dangerous enemies. Batman warns her that if she doesn't walk away from being Batgirl right now, this will be her future from here on out. Steadfast, Barbara completes the challenge anyway. Batman leads her outside to the grave of Thomas and Martha Wayne, where he reveals his identity as Bruce Wayne, allowing Batgirl to fully understand the reason behind his mission. Barbara swears an oath of loyalty to Batman and his ideals, but asks a final favor in return. On the roof of Gotham headquarters, Batman arrives with Batgirl to meet Captain Gordon. Batman tells uh, Gordon that he wishes to take Batgirl under his wing and ask for approval. Gordon says that he's not going to allow it since he believes his daughter to be Batgirl. Barbara meets her, her, her father on the roof, and the Batgirl that Batman brought along, we later discover, was actually Robin in disguise, sullen because Barbara doesn't seem to like him back. The next day, Barbara helps Jason Bard move into an office where he plans to work as a private eye. Jason asks Barbara about her own plans, and she reveals an interest in politics, but isn't really sure yet. The scene then switches to addressed as Batgirl, confronting Scarecrow alongside Batman and Robin. Barbara narrates that while she could keep worrying about what her life could become, she'd rather focus on the here and now. The end. I gotta tell you, this is... This is the perfect conclusion to this story. and it, Because in a weird kind of way, it does what a story like this needs to do Inasmuch as it ends where it began, with Barbara versus Killer Moth, except this time the stakes are just that much higher. And on top of all of that, once again, it's Barbara taking down Killer Moth, but in a way where she can't really get credit for it. And again, I just find that so believable. And there comes a point when, you know, Barbara truly does actually get her stripes. She receives a note saying that she needs to meet at the corner of O'Neill and Adams, and it's quite obviously from Batman. And he rolls up, and I just fucking, uh, by the way, love, love, love this, this Batmobile. It has this sort of vintage 1940s look to it, but not really. I mean that sort of 19, that sort of vintage throwback style it's not actually from the 40s it's designed to sort of be an homage to the 40s that you see with a lot of cars these days and i just friggin love this batmobile it's awesome it's got this sort of roadster look to it but not really and ugh, love it love it love it love it and uh anyway so then from there barbara goes through the obstacle course and she makes she has this internal monologue throughout this whole thing where she she says as she's taking down the uh, I guess the Joker robot she says to herself if this is my future and she's looking at the Joker or at least the Joker robot he's staring at her he's pointing a gun staring at her face to face and she says if this is my future, I'm not afraid of it. And then she ninja kicks the Joker robot in the face. And obviously, if you're at all familiar with what happened in the killing joke, this moment 
is supposed to kind of punch you in the balls a little bit. But you get the idea that, you know what, no, she really does mean this. If this is her destiny, she's willing to roll with it. This is the life that she's choosing for herself. And she's doing it on her terms. Nobody else's. And that's... That's just honest. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It's just honest. So then from there, you get that moment where Batman and the non-Batgirl, it's Dick Grayson dressed like Batgirl, meet with Captain Gordon on the roof of police headquarters. And you truly do get the get the idea that, yeah, Gordon did have this figured out. He knew what was going on. He knew that she, meaning Batgirl, or rather Barbara, truly was Batgirl. And now he has reason to reassess. And it's just this kind of creative and, I think, sort of playful misdirection that she's going to need in order to do her job. I mean, again, there's... Oh, jeez, I just... I fucking love this. This is awesome. I love this miniseries. Like I say, I'd never read it before. You know, before going on this sort of... Uh, first, this sort of Batman reading project, and then, like I say, this sort of tangent I found in the middle of my Batman reading project. But somehow, I'd overlooked this miniseries. And for my money... This is this is really uh, the way that the Babs Batgirl needs to be written. You know, her final bit of her final bit of uh, inner monologue in this in this issue and in this story is, "Sorry, Cassandra, but despite my great and abiding respect for oracles, I've decided to forego predictions and portents. There is what could be." And there is the life I lead right now. And uh, I just, I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Guys, in case it wasn't obvious, this story is fucking awesome. You need to read it. Find the trade. Buy the back issues. Do whatever you got to do. But, I mean, this story gives a why for the Babs Batgirl that I have truly never seen before. I mean... I get the idea that All-Star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder was building up towards giving us a different kind of origin story, a different sort of why, a different reason for being for Babs, and I don't know if we're ever going to see that, but at least for the moment it doesn't matter. This is, a, this is somebody who does what she wants to do because she wants to help, and as much as anything she's sick to fuck of being underestimated. She is done being treated like a helpless little girl and she wants to help and she's gonna basically join up with whoever lets her it could have been Gotham City Police it could have been the FBI instead it's Batman and Robin and I just find that ugh, that's just that's perfect that's, that's absolutely perfect and I don't know. I just, I, I love, 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 fucking love this story. But one of the things I haven't really talked a whole lot about, apart from the art, which 
Honestly, I mean, I think the art, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Marcus Martin, but I think the art is just, it's here, I love it, it's enjoyable. I think the real, in a weird kind of way, the real star of the show is Javier Rodriguez doing the colors, because he doesn't do, he doesn't do the colors in these issues as a sort of conventional superhero story, especially the night scenes. You know, you've got this bright, almost garish color palette, and in a weird, fucked up kind of way, it sort of reminds me of the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. And I love the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. Yes, I love them both, including Batman and Robin. And this color palette, I don't care what anybody says, it works for Batman, and God knows it works for Batgirl. It's awesome. So, it just needed to be said, and now I've said it. And this is just tons of fun. I recommend this story. Fucking go out there, buy the back issues, find the trade paperback, you know, buy it on Amazon. Do what you gotta do, people. Buy this fucking issue. You won't be sorry. You will love it. This I do affirm. So, as to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is Batman, Batgirl, which is a one-shot story, and then Batgirl, Girl Frenzy. So, uh, come back for that, because I'm going to have that coming up, and I think that's pretty much it for this week. So, because this episode's gone on so long already, I'm not going to have any kind of you know, feedback or anything like that, because this episode's gone long. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for this uh, for me this week. Bye, everybody. See you next week. Is your entire life populated with liars? Ever wondered if you're talking to somebody who's completely full of shit? Well then, have we got the app for you. Juked Micronics is proud to present the Lie Detector app. Yes, as seen on TV, the Juked Micronics Lie Detector app is here. And does it work? Bet your balls it works. All you have to do is turn on the Lie Detector app, Hold your phone up to your Mark's mouth and ask them to repeat their last statement. And within mere moments, 
the juked lie detector app will tell you if your mark fed you a line of total horse shit, or if they're telling you more truth than a 9-11 conspiracy video. The Juked Micronics Lie Detector app. Perfect for job interviews, Al-Qaeda terrorist interrogations, and double-checking your teenage daughter's alibi. The Lie Detector app. Now available from Juked Micronics. That's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing, and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual, and help out the two true freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required batteries not included. Do not remove this tag under penalty of law. All models are over the age of 18. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.